0: Episode 61, the Second Continental Congress and the Declaration of Independence. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Well, It's 1776. Things are really beginning to happen. We just had the Boston Tea Party, Patrick Henry's speech, and the Battles of Lexington and Concord, and the Battle of Bunker Hill. The British have shelled and burned several colonial towns, including Falmouth, Massachusetts, and Norfolk, Virginia. These are their own colonies, mind you, and they have burned the towns. The colonies are in open revolt against the British government. And it's amazing what a big deal this was. The colonies had no army, no navy, no military at all except the local militias, which were made up mostly of volunteers. Most of them were farmers, with farms they had to go back to and tend to. There were no professional soldiers, very few trained leaders, and no central organization that could coordinate the defense of the colonies against the most powerful military in the world. And make no mistake about this, the British had the most powerful navy in the world by far, and one of the most well-trained and powerful armies as well. Against this, the colonies had, well, farmers. And here's the weird thing. At this point, it's a civil war. In 1776, everyone was still an Englishman. The English from England were fighting against the English colonists. But it's not going to stay this way for long. The colonists have increasingly begun to see themselves not so much as British, but as American. And the taxation without representation, the siege of Boston, the battles of Lexington, Concord, and Yorktown, and the British shelling of the coastal towns really made the colonists feel like they were not part of Great Britain. They felt increasingly like the British government did not represent their best interests at all, but instead wanted to subjugate them and wanted them to be nothing more than peasants. They felt like the government of Great Britain, the King and the Parliament, were becoming tyrants and violating the rights that all the colonists supposedly had as Englishmen. And they, they weren't wrong. That's how they were being treated. When your government treats you like a peasant, completely ignores your legitimate complaints, taxes you without letting you have any say in that taxation or how it's going to be spent, when the government violates the legal rights that have already been written into law, When the government sends spies among you, and then sends full-blown armies against you, well, then your government's probably being tyrannical. And with the exception of sending full-blown armies against us, that's what our current government is doing, not just here in the US, but in most of the countries of the West. In the places where the citizens aren't armed, like Australia, Canada, the UK, and Europe, In United States, states like Illinois, New York, and California, the taxation and the erosion of civil liberties is even worse than it is in places like Texas, where everyone is actually armed. And as I said when I was talking about the battles of Lexington and Concord, if you are in America, it's a bad idea to try to forcibly take away people's guns. So, back to 1776, we're about to see the colonists come together and say, no, we're not gonna live with this kind of tyranny. And I think it's fair to say that all of the current governments of the Western democracies are far more tyrannical, far more tax hungry, and far more involved in trying to curtail their citizens' civil and inalienable rights than the British government was to the colonies back in 1776. So many of the colonies, including Massachusetts, New York, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and New Hampshire were already organizing and arming their militias. In addition, there were plans for a second Continental Congress. The first Continental Congress, which I mentioned last episode, met in Philadelphia in September of 1774, and all the colonies had been represented except Georgia. They had agreed to a boycott of British goods and had drafted a petition to the king, which was ignored by the king and by parliament, and then The Congress had made plans to come back together for a Second Continental Congress. The Second Continental Congress came together in the summer of 1775. That summer, the Second Congress drew up what was known as the Olive Branch Petition. In the sense of the dove carrying the olive branch, it's meant for a gesture of peace. The Olive Branch Petition was sent to the king on July 5, 1775. At the core of it was this statement. We solemnly assure your majesty that we not only most ardently desire the former harmony between her and these colonies may be restored, but that a concord may be established between them upon so firm a basis as to perpetuate the blessings uninterrupted by any future dissensions to succeeding generations in both countries. Now this olive branch petition was signed by no less than John Hancock, Samuel Adams, John Adams, John Dickinson, Benjamin Franklin, and John Jay, as well as others. It was a request to the king to enforce the colonists' rights as English citizens and saying that they wanted to remain loyal to the crown. But built into the olive branch petition in a couple of places was the idea That if the king and the British government did not change the way they were treating the colonies, there would be ongoing dissensions, as the colonists called it. King George declared that this was an illegal document created by an illegal congress, and he rejected it in August of 1775. Apparently, he didn't even look at the document. When the colonists heard about this, they were furious. It was kind of the last straw. The Second Continental Congress took a break, but then came back together again in May of 1776, meeting again in Philadelphia. Now, this was after all the battles, Lexington, Concord, Yorktown, etc. Newly added to the congressional delegates in May of 1776 were Benjamin Franklin and John Hancock. In late May, the Congress heard back that the king had not even looked at the Olive Branch Resolution and that it was not going to be considered in Parliament. They also heard that the king had declared the colonies to be in open rebellion, and thus outside the protection of British law. In June, a delegate from Virginia, Richard Henry Lee, gave to the Congress a resolution for independence. There was a great clamor to vote on the resolution, and if they had voted for it, it would have essentially been them declaring independence from Britain but not all the delegates had the authority yet from their colonies to vote for independence. They had to go back to their colony and convene some sort of legislative body that could give them the authority to vote for independence, to vote on this resolution. So they spent about a month going back to their colonies to get the authority, and all the colonies agreed to give their delegates the authority to vote for independence. Now that's a big, big deal. The fact that all 13 colonies were on board with this plan was also a big deal. Now, this group of men meeting together in Philadelphia had the authority to declare that all 13 colonies were in rebellion together and that they were now an independent country of their own. But meanwhile, as the delegates were gathering that authority, the Congress had already created a committee of five men to draft a document. These five men were Robert Livingston of New York, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, and listen to this lineup, John Adams of Massachusetts, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, and Thomas Jefferson of Virginia. I mean, wow, that's quite a group, maybe the best three minds in all of the Americas, maybe in the history of the Americas. And they worked together on a document they would officially declare to the colonies— to the territories, to the countries of Europe and the rest of the world, and especially to Great Britain, that the colonies were now an independent country. But Jefferson did most of the work. We still have copies of some of his original drafts. Look that up and compare it to the Declaration of Independence and and see the difference. The original is pretty powerful too. By the 1st of July in 1776, All the necessary delegates, with all the necessary colonial authorities from each of the colonies, were all back in Philadelphia, and many of them saw drafts of Jefferson's work. On July 2nd, the Congress voted to adopt Lee's resolution from back in June. They all knew, everyone voting that day knew, that they were committing treason against the king and the government of Great Britain. They also knew that the penalty for treason was hanging. The delegates knew that they were putting themselves firmly on the course of give me liberty or give me death they were going to get one or they were going to get the other and after the vote benjamin franklin said gentlemen we must hang together or we will most assuredly hang separately so the vote was taken on july 2nd and then the proposed declaration was read and then for the next two days, every word in Jefferson's draft was analyzed and argued about. So they finally agreed on numerous changes. And despite the fact that this was a document created by a committee, it was still an amazing document. We'll look at the actual declaration in a moment, and, and we'll talk more about it in the next episode. After arguing over every word for two days, on July 4th, 1776, the Second Congress agreed to the wording of the proposed Declaration of Independence and voted on it and agreed to publish the declaration across the colonies. So the 4th of July is officially the day that the United States declared to the world that they were from that day on their own independent country. The document that they agreed to on July 4th was an amazing collection of ideas written out in beautiful memorable prose And the colonies declared that because the king and the parliament had been tyrannical and had abused the inherent rights of the colonists, that the colonies had the right before God, before man, and all of history to throw off that government and create their own. Now, quick side thought here, right? This is exactly what the pilgrims had done at Plymouth Rock in 1620, 150 years earlier when they signed the Mayflower Compact and agreed to create a government for themselves that would best protect their rights and their well-being. So the delegates of the Second Continental Congress agreed to ratify a document that both declared them to be independent and gave the reasons for that declaration. Of all the words written here about freedom, there's a line that's at the heart of all the others. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. And well, he's not wrong. He's exactly right. That is the idea that's at the heart of it. So let's get into the actual text of the document that I would argue is the most important document in all of human history. It's really maybe the best we've ever done as humans. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another And to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's god entitle them a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and, accordingly, all experience has shewn that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object. evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient suffering of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of Of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having, in direct object, the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And then the declaration goes on for about half the length of the total document to list all of the British government and the king's repeated injuries and usurpations. If you read it today, it seems sort of odd, like, hey, why did they just list all this? But in the context of what they were doing, it makes good sense. The colonists were saying, look at this list. It proves that we have the rights that we're claiming in this document, especially the right and the duty to throw off this tyrannical government. The list of abuses that they cite is the thing that justifies the right to declare themselves independent from that abusive government. Then the Declaration of Independence closes with this. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And that as free and independent states, they have the full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, With a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And then the document has all the signatures of the assembled representatives, although they didn't actually sign it on the 4th. They came back a few weeks later and signed the official copy. And the first signature, famously, written in a quite large hand, is John Hancock. Now, I've spent a couple of days myself reading and rereading the Declaration, and I've decided that it's so important and it contains so many good ideas that I'm going to spend the whole next episode, sort of a special episode, unpacking the things that the Declaration said and explaining why all of those things still matter today. Now, after Congress approved the final draft on July 4th, a copy of the final version was sent to a nearby printer who, over the next couple of days, printed several hundred copies of it. These were quickly distributed throughout the colonies. The first printing of it in a newspaper was on July 6th by the Pennsylvania Evening Post. The official first reading of the declarations of independence started on July 8th, and that happened in Philadelphia, in Easton, Pennsylvania, and in Trenton, New Jersey, and then it spread all over the colonies. General George Washington had it read to the troops in New York City on July 9th. All over the colonies, people reacted with cheers and celebrations. And in many places, they tore down statues and signs that had something to do with King George or the British government. Now, there were still, however, a lot of people at this point that wanted to stay part of Great Britain. And they thought that independence was a really bad idea. But it was too late for that. The die was cast. British officials in the U.S. received copies of the Declaration, including General Howe, the new commander of the British forces in the colonies. Copies of the Declaration were sent back to Great Britain, which took about a month, but soon the British were all aware that the colonies had declared independence. The British press printed copies of the Declaration, but most of the people in Britain and the press dismissed it as simply another complaint by the colonists, which would soon be put to right by the British army. But the British press and the politicians completely missed the powerful pull of the words that the Declaration was going to have on the hearts and the minds of the colonists. After the Declaration was published, there was no going back. Now, there's a story that on July 4th, King George wrote in his diary. Nothing much happened this day, but that story might just be a myth because there's no real evidence that King George actually kept a diary. But even so, it's illustrative of the British reaction to the colonists' declaration. They just didn't think it was that big of a thing. But it was. It was a huge, world-changing thing. The Declaration of Independence captures some incredibly deep, insightful thinking about human rights, government, and human aspirations. So join me next episode as we take a closer look at the words and ideas of the Declaration of Independence and why it's so important even today.